Well, it's as if God had dropped wardrobes into our cities all over North America. And you could go to Nashville, Tennessee and step into this community and you emerged on the other side in Kurdistan in Northern Iraq. Because here were 30,000 Iraqi Kurds living in Nashville, Tennessee. And these were not just immigrant communities. These were literally gateways to the ends of the earth. podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming and I am your host and today we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with David Garrison of Global Gates. Did you know that there are unreached people groups who have never, ever heard that there is a gospel? They're often called UPGs for short. And did you know that there are UPGs in North America? Who are they? Where are they? And how can we reach them? That's what we're going to be talking about today on Apollos Watered. Our guest today is David Garrison, who is the executive director of Global Gates. What is Global Gates, you may ask? Well, Global Gates' mission is to see gospel transformation of the world's most unevangelized people groups who have come to global gateway cities and through them reach their communities around the world. David is really qualified for this job. He has a PhD in historical theology from the University of Chicago. He's a veteran of more than 30 years as a missionary pioneer. His writings include the non-residential missionary, church planning movements, and my particular favorite, Wind in the House of Islam, which is a fantastic book. As well as serving as the Global Gates Executive Director, he serves as the church planting consultant in the professional services group of Missio Nexus, the largest network of evangelical missions in the world. He's the husband of Sonia and has four grown children. I wanted to have David on the show because I love what he's doing, and I love Global Gates, and I think we all need to know more about them because the nations, the unreached people groups, these UPGs are all around us. They're at the grocery store, the gym, our workplaces and neighborhoods. The nation are at our doorstep, and the question we must ask ourselves is this, are we ready to join God in what he is doing in reaching them in our everyday world? The nations are across the seas, yes, but they're also across the street, and it's that mission that we're going to be talking about today on Apollos Watered. Happy listening. David Garrison, welcome to Apollos Watered. Thank you, Travis. Great to be with you. <laughs> So, are you ready for the Fast Five? Uh, as ready as I can get, I suppose. Okay. Chipotle or Kidoba? Had to be Chipotle. Why? It's just the last time I ate at either one of those, it was a Chipotle, but I haven't really eaten at either one in the last uh, maybe four or five years. Oh, pandemic or just not, not enjoying it? Uh, you know, as you get older, you got to watch what you eat a little more. When I was younger, <laughs> I could I could chug down two or three Chipotle meals. Nowadays, I've got to be more careful. What's your favorite food? What's your favorite restaurant? How about that? You know, I'm I'm. If you ask me my favorite food, you know, this is one of the guilty pleasures. I was back visiting relatives in Arkansas a couple of weeks ago, and every morning they would fix me 
scrambled eggs, biscuits, uh, crispy bacon, and uh, white homestyle gravy. And I would put them all together. <laughs> and man, that was a feast that um, I'm still trying to get those pounds off just from that four-day visit. <laughs> no, that's good food, though. That's good food. Absolutely. Here we go. What is the funniest movie you've ever seen? You know, I, I I used to like the airplane movies. I would watch those and always laugh. I love the uh, the double entendres, you know, and uh, and I still will pull those up from time to time and get a get a good kick out of them. So yeah, I, I also like Thor Ragnarok. I love the humor in that. I think it's just really uh, well done, and I can watch that a few times. There's some really good one-liners Indeed. in Thor Ragnarok. The one that always gets me is when Hulk shows up and Thor, you know, he says, <laughs> We're friends from work. From work. Yeah. <laughs> they said a well kid had showed up on the set and said that. And they love yeah. the line so much they put it in there. Yeah, Taika Waititi's uh, humor is just sprinkled throughout the thing. And he, he plays a good part, too, as this sort of a, um, uh, this rocky character that's yeah. uh, there in the, uh, the Coliseum. What does he call him? Oh, Doug. He's the new Doug. (laughs) (laughs) All right. How about this one? Now, um, what do your, what are your family? What is the weird habit that they say you have? Well, increasingly they pointed out to me that I snore loud enough to uh, rattle the walls. And so (laughs) when I visit or they visit me, they make it a point to uh, buffer me as much as they can. So it's very humiliating. Those are hard. I went on a men's retreat once and I knew better when I went in the room and I got the biggest fan, brought the biggest fan I could find with earplugs. It was so loud with so many guys snoring in that room. That's sad. Sad reality of getting older. Oh, yeah, that's true. Now, you've been involved in missions in a lot of different places. You've interacted with a lot of different people groups. So I always like to ask this question to those who have done that. What is the weirdest food? you have ever eaten? Uh, you know, we, we lived in, my wife and I, Sonia and I lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years. And uh, for most of, much of our life, we worked in the Muslim world, which is really a very predictable sort of diet. It's all halal food. In, in Hong Kong, they have over 5,000 different types of food they talk about there from ethnic varieties from across China. And and our friends, uh, my wife was a youth minister at the International Baptist Church, and our friends in the church were from all over parts of China, and they loved to take us to their ethnic restaurant and introduce us to some unique food and uh, that, that was distinctive to their culture. And so I remember one night we had a meal with uh, Duck's Web which is the web between the toes of a duck. It was one of the one of the many entrees. And we went home that night. You know, we'd eaten it. It was okay. It was a little bit, you know, kind of rubbery, as you might imagine, gelatinous. And we got home that night. You know, there was a saying in Hong Kong that anything with its back under the sky is good for food. And we thought, you know, what else could they could they put into a meal? And it all tastes great. You know, the Chinese have a way of making these spices and they've had 5,000, 10,000 years to perfect the art of good cooking. And, you know, a billion, 300 million people can't be wrong. So you just kind of learn to adapt with it. It was a long ways from my my diet growing up, which was kind of an old Anglo 
Northern European diet of, you know, meat and potatoes. So yeah, that duck's web, I think, took the cake. We were joking that night, you know, what else might we eat? You know, duck tongues, uh, you know, snake ears, uh, <laughs> chicken lips. It's just uh, anything was possible. But we knew if the Chinese made it, that chances are we were going to love it, as long as we didn't ask questions. Occasionally, we would eat something. And, and while we were enjoying, I said, man, this is great. One of our Chinese friends would say, do you know what's in that? <laughs> and I would say, don't you dare tell me until I finished it and it's settled for a while. But, you know, that's kind of the way it was. We loved it. We fell in love with uh, the diverse diet that they had. And, and um, you know, to this day, we, uh, we're kind of an international family. We have Indian food for uh, Thanksgiving or, or Christmas when the kids come in for the holidays. And my wife is a wonderful cook. Sometimes she'll cook North African food. We lived in North Africa for a while, and she'll make a big uh, uh, meal of couscous. And uh, yeah, so we, we, we've come to uh, embrace the world. That's awesome, especially in your food. Mm. I think once you try those foods, it's hard to, it's a bit of an adjustment, but after a while, it starts to, it grows on you. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, but it takes, if you don't make it over that first hump, you know, of breaking out of your your routine, then you uh, you may have trouble doing it, you know, as you go forward. Because we we from Anglo Northern European backgrounds tend to have a rather bland diet, and uh, see so once you come to embrace it, then you get a craving for these other things, you know, these uh, spices and uh, flavors of the world. But it, if you don't get over that, then you simply go back home and never really get that cross cultural experience. No. You got to kind of work up to it. We lived in India for six years. And when we first got there, we asked uh, this woman who was cooking for us uh, Indian meals. We said, uh, would you mind, you know, for our kids sake, don't put too many spices in it. Well, Indian food without spices is just, it's not good. And uh, within a few months, uh, we began to crave the spices. And now it's one of our favorite things. We'll get this. You're just thinking about my mouth starts watering. Uh, we love those those spices, but again, we can't necessarily take it as hot as as some of the the locals can take it. Oh no, that's for sure. That's for sure. So here's your your fifth and final question. You mm. said you lived predominantly, or you worked predominantly with Muslims, but I, I'm going to ask you a different kind of question here. If you were a Muslim country, okay, a country, which Muslim country would you be, and why? <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, that's a hard one. That is, you know, I, I still think maybe Egypt. We lived in Egypt for a year and, um, I just love the richness of the history there. Egypt is such a fascinating place. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, uh, tens of millions of people all living along the uh, banks of the Nile, uh, these incredibly dense, complex, um, cities built on the ruins of ancient civilizations that go back thousands of years. And, we loved it when we were there. It's uh, the people have a great sense of humor, even though it's a quote unquote Islamic country. It has one of the largest Christian minorities that predate Islam uh, living there. The people love to laugh. They love to tell jokes. They're very self-effacing in their humor. And that's um, kind of where we all began. You know, you, when you're there, you feel like these are our roots you see the pyramids and you realize that they were almost a thousand years old when Abraham saw them for yeah. the first time. 
just fascinating things like that. Uh, so I still think I'd choose Egypt. It's such a diverse and complex uh, mosaic of, uh, of the Muslim world and of humanity. You know, you mentioned that I, I loved my time in Egypt. I I, I spent uh, a few weeks, not a, a year, but a, a several weeks traveling up and down the country. And we were on a, a boat on the Nile. And uh, me and this other man who, who he was there, he had been a pastor of a church in New Jersey. And so we're getting into this discussion. And one of our Egyptian tour guide um, starts asking us questions. And he says, are, are you what religion are you? And we said, well, we're Christians. And he said, oh, what kind of Christian? <laughs> and we said, well, you know, we're like evangelicals. He goes, what's that? He didn't know what that was. And right. we said, well, we're, we're Protestants. And he goes, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I said, well, we protested the Roman. We left the Roman Catholic Church. And he goes, they were wrong from the beginning. <laughs> he was a Coptic. <laughs> I traced it all the way back to Mark. Yeah. I'm like, I got it's nothing. I got, I got <laughs> yeah, we actually named our uh, our youngest son Mark. We were living in Tunisia at the time in North Africa. We named him after uh, the first bishop of North Africa, John Mark. Yeah. And at the time, our assignment was Libyans, and Mark was born in Libya. Marcus, uh, the the prophet Mark, uh, or the apostle, uh, uh, author of the Gospel of Mark, was uh, born in the town of Derna over in Cyrenaica. And the Libyans to this day still, uh, you know, they're still very proud of the fact that uh, they call him uh, John Mark the Evangelist uh, is a Libyan. It's amazing when you start looking at those historical traces and how people hold on to their heritage. I, I love that. Absolutely. You've given us a bit of an insight into some of your ministry, but let's hear the David Garrison story. Where are you, where are you from? Arkansas is what I heard you say, but you've traveled all over. Yeah, we... Uh, my wife and I both grew up in, in southern Arkansas. She spent some time in Texas as well. Her dad was a football coach. Uh, one of his more notable uh, students that he coached, student athletes, was uh, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, wow. Sonia's dad had him when he was in high school, and he was even then, you know, moving toward making money. He was just a real uh, aggressive entrepreneurial type fellow. Uh, we met uh, at the altar uh, in a little Baptist church in, in uh, Camden, Arkansas. Um, it was the Sunday that I walked down the aisle of our church to surrender my life to Christian ministry. Mm. That same Sunday, her family walked down the other aisle. They had just moved to town. He was a new coach in town, and she and I met at the altar. And uh, six years later, we walked down a, a different aisle and commenced at a different altar to begin a life together as a husband and wife. So, yeah, um, we go way back. We were, you know, high school sweethearts. Um, I always had a hunger to know what God was doing in the world. Ever since I gave my life to him, he kind of opened the world up to me. So as a sophomore in college, I was at a little Baptist university in Arkansas called Ouachita Baptist University. And, mm. uh, I jumped into their exchange program to go to Japan, lived in Japan for a year, studied Japanese, and really saw a perspective on the world that I had never seen before. And I felt strangely at home there. Uh, I wanted to be a part of what God was doing to expand his kingdom around the world. Uh, I wasn't called into missions per se at the time, but I, I had a great love for missions. I'd had a Missionary kid was my pastor growing up, the person who baptized me. And so I, I grew up hearing stories of missions. And so when I got to um, 
Japan, where they had less than 1% Christian. Uh, and um, I realized that back uh, home in Arkansas, I could stand in line to wait to fill a pulpit to preach somewhere or to take a church staff position. There were lots of people there. In Japan, almost anywhere I went, I was probably the only Christian they had ever met. Mm. And so I decided to go back for a couple of years. We had a program called the uh, Journeyman Program, where you could go for two years, kind of on my left of the Peace Corps. By then, I married my high school sweetheart, Sonia, and I I had gone to Golden Gate Seminary in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, which is a great uh, multi-ethnic melting pot Our church had six different language congregations worshiping there in San Francisco. And after finishing there, we went to Hong Kong and I taught at Baptist College for a couple of years. And I think if you'd asked me about three months into it, uh, what I thought about it, I would say, shoot me now. I'm going crazy. I don't like this. Uh, I, I was in deep culture shock. I was stressed out. And we were both ready to go home. But that's the kind of part of the process of adjusting cross-culturally. And six months in, we fell in love with it. And uh, we're there for the next year and a half. After that, we asked God if he would allow us to be missionaries the rest of our lives. Mm. And he graciously uh, agreed. And uh, so we finished up there. I went back to get a terminal degree at the University of Chicago. And it was while I was there that I met this guy named Dr. David Barrett, who's an Anglican church missionary, society missionary who'd served in Africa, but was more noted as the uh, editor of the World Christian Encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. He'd spent 14 years getting a handle on the whole state of the world in terms of uh, evangelization, in terms of uh, scripture and Christian ministry and presence and so forth. He was actually tracking over 14,000 uh, people groups. Uh, from every nation on earth. And um, I met him at this conference when I was in Chicago, and he invited me to come and be his associate. Uh, So I ended up uh, joining him at the time he was working out of the International Mission Board. It was called the Foreign Mission Board then of the Southern Baptist Convention in Richmond, Virginia. And I went and joined him, finished up my dissertation there. Martin Marty at the University of Chicago was my uh, internal advisor, and David Barrett was my external advisor. And uh, while there, uh, Barrett um, introduced me to what's been called the 1040 window. Uh, He called it World A. It was that part of the world that is not only non-Christian, it's unevangelized. It has no prayer or access to the gospel. And he said, this is the unfinished task of the Great Commission. And I became uh, captivated with that. Uh, I searched the scriptures as any good good Baptist would do to see, is this biblical? And I saw, yeah, Jesus first identified it. He called it the ends of the earth. Mm. And the ends of the earth became my my lodestone. It just drew me. And uh, from that point forward, uh, we were committed in that direction. I've given the last uh, 40 years almost of my life to that uh, passion and focus. And it's taken us all over the world. From our home office in Richmond, Virginia, with the International Mission Board, to assignments in Egypt and Tunisia and uh, India and uh, Thailand uh, and uh, all over South Asia and Central Asia. So that's it in a nutshell. Let's talk then about Global Gates. You're the executive director of Global Gates. What what is Global Gates? When did it start? And and tell us about what you guys do because that really coincides with your heartbeat and what God has done with you. It seems like a perfect match. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were always focused at the ends of the earth and we're looking at uh, breakthroughs, ways that God was 
multiplying uh, new believers and disciples and churches. And so I wrote a book back in uh, 2004 called Church Planting Movements, How God is Redeeming a Lost World. And it really kind of pricked the interest of a lot of people about how we cannot just win individuals, but see uh, multiplying churches spread across a people group. And I was uh, involved in that sort of uh, arena, working with the broader evangelical world, learning best practices, sharing best practices uh, that were leading to multiplying disciples in churches. When uh, I was in uh, Colorado, one day I got a phone call from a guy in New York City. He says, uh, David, this is uh, Brad Wall. I'm the co-founder of Global Gates. And I'd vaguely heard of Global Gates. They were working in New York City. And he said, look, man, we're doubling in size about every six months. So we're reaching the very same people groups that you've been involved with, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Sikhs. But what we found is they have huge diaspora populations, immigrant communities here in North American global gateway cities. He said, we're growing so fast that Chris Clayman and I, and Chris was his co-founder, he said, we're we're just being overwhelmed with what it takes to keep up with the growth. Would you consider coming and being our executive director? And I remember my immediate response was, and who is this again? <laughs> because I was, I was looking the ends of the earth. I was kind of blindsided by my goodness. They're right here in our own backyard. And uh, Brad Wall invited me to come to New York and I met with him and Chris Clayman. And uh, Sonia and I, we spent some time just walking through some of these neighborhoods. And I, I knew that, uh, you know, New York was a multi-ethnic place. That, that was not a surprise to me. But what surprised me was the magnitude of it, mm. where you would have neighborhoods with tens of thousands of Yemeni Muslims or Somalis or Afghans or Tibetan Buddhists or Hindus. And you go through these neighborhoods and no one was speaking English. They were speaking Punjabi or they were speaking Hassaniya Arabic. They were speaking Tibetan. And that was interesting to note. They didn't have to assimilate like maybe they did in the past. But the final thing that tipped the scales for us was when we saw that they were all on their telephone, speaking in their heart language, and in many cases, talking to family members on the other side of the world every single day, sometimes several times a day, at no cost, because they were using you know WhatsApp or FaceTime or Skype, some free online service. And we realized a little light came on that these were not just immigrant communities. These were portals. These were gateways to the ends of the earth that God was opening right here in our own backyard. And I think one of the things maybe that prepared us for this, besides maybe some science fiction movies, was C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you remember that story, all evangelicals are pretty familiar with it, where these children could step into the wardrobe and they emerge in Narnia. Well, it's as if God had dropped wardrobes into our cities all over North America. And you could go to Nashville, Tennessee, and step into this community and you emerged on the other side in Kurdistan, in northern Iraq, because mm. here were 30,000 Iraqi Kurds living in Nashville, Tennessee. Or you could go into St. Louis, Missouri, and go into some of the restaurants there and find that you had stepped into Sarajevo or Bosnia, because there were 50,000 Bosnian Muslims living in St. Louis, Missouri. 
And you could do the same thing in city after city, 80,000 Somalis in Minneapolis, Minnesota, 60,000 Afghans in Fremont, California. And these were not just immigrant communities. These were literally gateways to the ends of the earth because reaching these people here, they were staying in touch with, and they were very influential in the communities from which they had come. So that was the vision that Chris Clayman and Brad Wall shared with me. They were the co-founders. And about uh, three or four years into the formation of Global Gates, uh, I came on as executive director, and I've been working with them for really the last eight years. Mm. We're now in 29 cities across North America and uh, several other cities internationally, uh, working with uh, people groups that have come literally from the far corners of the ends of the earth. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. There's so many questions that I have. How do you identify these different cities? Like what makes you pick? What, what, what is the process that you go through to identify these unreached people groups in these, uh, these cities? Well, that's a very, very fundamental question. And so it's, it's a great question that you're asking, uh, Travis. We now have a website and Chris Clayman has been very instrumental working with other evangelicals to, de- to develop this website. It's called UPG, which stands for Unreached People Group upgnorthamerica.com, upgnorthamerica.com. It's where we've put all of the data that we've compiled, as well as that from organizations like uh, Wycliffe Translators, uh, uh, International Mission Board of Southern Baptist and North American Mission Board and other groups. And on this site, you can actually go in and uh, type in the name of a city or select a city from any particular state in North America and click on it and it'll pull up the names of every unreached people group in that city, what their population is and what neighborhood they're predominantly centered around. Because these, uh, these immigrants, they tend to cluster together around their common restaurants and, and uh, uh, grocery stores and, and meeting facility, worship places. So with this, you can actually type in if you want to uh, Hindus and it'll pull up all the Hindu populations in every major city in North America. And you can sort it then by city. So this is a upgnorthamerica.com. It's a great resource. I highly recommend it. You can also do prayer walks through some of these neighborhoods. Some of our missionaries have gone on to use uh, Google Images and Google Earth 
to take you on prayer walks through those neighborhoods so you can actually pray through their uh, their their holy sites, see what their uh, gurdwaras are for the Sikh community or their uh, mosques are for the Islamic communities. Go into their grocery stores and see their community centers and just see what life is like in their neighborhood online before you actually go and visit in person. There's been so much of a shift with so many people moving to the cities. We, we don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. Obviously, many people are leaving cities, at least with the stats, but not necessarily those immigrant populations. Right. Uh, but I, a lot of the folks I know, and you and I are both from small towns. I mean, we both lived in cities, and yet we know that small towns have a tendency to kind of stay away from cities. And some suburbs want to stay away from the city. They see that as a, as a bad place, but it's really just a place where where people are, that's where they've been positioned and they're, they're living there. They're just doing their life like everybody else. Why, why is it that we need to really draw attention to our cities today? And why, why is that important for us to really see what God's doing in the cities? Well, because that's where the people are. And that's, that's how we demonstrate our love to God is by going to where the people are, particularly lost people. You're right. It is sort of a an odd coincidence that as God has brought the ends of the earth to us, we have gone to the suburbs to get away from those places. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not because we, um, you know, we inherently are opposed to cities or those people. It's just that there's that evangelical lift, you know, that you hear about that when people begin living an evangelical lifestyle, they're faithful to their spouse. They become more family oriented. They remove the vices that had sucked away life and treasure from their their uh, life patterns, they economically thrive. And when they economically thrive, they start looking for better schools, better neighborhoods, better uh, conditions for their families. Uh, But the entry point for so many of these uh, people who come to America is the cities. They come to the cities because that's where the jobs are. And we saw during the pandemic, uh, Bangladeshi families, for example, who had immigrated by the tens of thousands to uh, cities like New York and, and Houston, and they would often live, you know, two, three uh, generations all crammed into one apartment. So unfortunately, the, um, the pandemic, uh, as COVID went through, it just ravaged many of these uh, uh, unfortunate communities of immigrants because they did leave, live so closely together mm. and could not escape the city. So what we're trying to do is uh, help the churches wherever they're found, whether they're in the city or in the suburbs or in small towns across uh, Uh, America, to realize that uh, God has brought the nations to them, and that this is not a coincidence. God didn't make a mistake. It's not the result of bad uh, immigration policy, although we may have bad immigration policy. We're not pro, uh, you know, open borders. That's not the point. The point is they're here already, and these are people, you know, the vast majority have come in legally. They've come in looking for a better life for their family and their future, But even more importantly, the Bible tells us, this is found in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. It says, Paul says, from one nation, God made all the peoples of the earth, and he determined what would be their boundaries and the times that they would live in these places. And he did this so that they might reach out for him Mm. and that they might find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And what that little passage tells us, that Acts chapter 17 passage, is that wherever people are, 
They're there because God determined their times and their boundaries. And he did that for a purpose. The purpose was so that they would perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. And I try to cast a vision for our brothers and sisters in churches all over the country that look what God is doing in our day. He is bringing the ends of the earth to us in a way that not only was not possible 20 years ago, but what's possible today is now that they're here, they're communicating back to their homelands. Mm -hmm. So if we communicate the gospel and new life in Jesus Christ to them here and now today, it is sending reverberations, gospel echoes that are going literally to the ends of the earth, to places that will no longer allow us as missionaries to go. But these people are going, they're communicating, they're talking every single day to those places. This is going to sound like a strange question. What classifies as a city? You know, that's an interesting question. I lived in South Asia, in India, actually. We lived in Bangalore oh. for six years. And I used to tell our missionaries, you know, the more I visit the cities here, we had, uh, you know, huge cities like uh, Delhi and Calcutta oh. and, and Mumbai. I said, the more I visit these cities, the more I'm convinced that cities are a bit of an optical illusion. You see them on a map, they have a name, Delhi, Cincinnati, New York. But that's sort of a 60,000-foot map view. When you get closer, you find that there are ethnic communities within those cities that are dynamic and changing. And inside the city, for example, in New York, you can live in a, a Yemeni neighborhood in Bayside, Brooklyn, New York, and never really have to learn any other language than the language of Hassaniya Arabic, the language you grew up with. Your grocery store, they speak it there your place of worship, they speak, and even your schools, your madrasas, they're using that same language. Um, so in a sense, these cities are simply concentrations of ethnic communities. Mm. In the deep south, it used to be, there's the white side of town and the black side of town. Well, those are two different ethnic communities perched side by side in what was called Little Rock, Arkansas, mm. or Natchez, Mississippi. In fact, you had two ethno-linguistic concentrations juxtaposed to each other. Today, they are much more diverse. And the, the tragedy is, is when we get settled into one enclave uh, and we worship there, we do our grocery buying there, we do our work there, we may never cross over that line to that other community unless we can see them through the eyes of the Great Commission. We see them through God's eyes and realize that God brought this Nigerian, this um, Somali, this Uzbek community to our town for purposes of meeting us and through us meeting Jesus, mm. who's not very far from any one of them. You mentioned the unreached people groups. I remember living in New England, and there were a lot of different people groups, but many of them actually were Christian. And what mm -hmm. amazed me is it was them that was keeping the church alive and mm -hmm. thriving. A lot of the mm -hmm. Anglo churches were dying, but it was the immigrant and refugee churches that were thriving. Yeah. Um, as you've seen this, I've even seen some of the statistical data and feel free to correct me where, or, or maybe some articles that have actually shown that that's spilling out into even small towns. Now, smaller yeah. communities are experiencing some diversity because I hear some of my small town 
uh, listeners that are out there saying, well, this doesn't really relate to me. I'm not in a city, but Mm-hmm. it's changing all over the place, not just the cities. That's the primary concentration, but it's happening all over. And even in the suburbs, I've lived in the suburbs and the suburbs are becoming more, more diverse. Do you differentiate between the suburb and a city? You know, not really. Again, like I said, in a sense, okay. both of those are artificial constructs. Right. They're just where people are. Okay. And just as uh, cities change, you know, you look and say, well, New York hasn't, it's been New York for 300 years. Yeah, but look at it up close. It's totally different. You know, a lot of the um, gang violence that people lament in some of our major cities today say, oh, you know, it's it's Hispanic and it's African-American. And all you have to do is go back and read uh, the gangs of New York mm-hmm. in the late 19th century. These were white uh, Irish immigrants to New York City who were some of the most bloodthirsty, ruthless gangs that we've ever seen. Uh the city, you know, in name maybe stays the same, but people are always percolating. They're always changing when people can get enough uh, socioeconomic uh, status to move out of the city to the suburbs, they'll do it. And so what's in the cities today will be in the suburbs tomorrow. Uh, and we're already seeing that take place. Oh, well, that's so, so true. Uh, I, I pastored in the northwest part of Chicago and uh, the church I pastored was uh, Midwest Bible Church, which is where Youth for Christ started. And a lot of the folks, when I came along in the in the 90s, they'd been there. The church had started in 1933, and it was predominantly children of immigrants that came from Norway and Sweden. Hmm. And they would make a lot of jokes about it. But see, there had been a shift in the 70s where a lot of people came from Mexican backgrounds, and they moved into the area. Well, a lot of those folks when they got economically, um, you know, they grew economically, they moved out to the suburbs and they bust back in uh, or they came back in for church. But then the church started to shift and it became, you know, the next group coming in was Polish and then down the road was Puerto Rican. So I, I truly understand that those groups that ebbs and flows, you'd see that with different ethnic groups all the time coming in and that would change the makeup of the church, which we want our churches to be a reflection of our neighborhoods and be able to reach out because I think that's being a, a good church. If you're just one group and you're not reaching the community around you, even though you're in that community, then that's a negative. Um, thinking through the, the different cities, you mentioned how many different cities are you guys in in North America? We're in 29 cities in North America and two or three cities overseas. We know, Okay, we know New York City. What's the most diverse city in all of North America? Oh, New York City by far, Okay, followed probably by Toronto okay. and Vancouver. Okay. And Houston. Houston is one of those places that uh, doesn't have as big a population as New York, so not as large a, a, of ethnic communities, but extremely diverse. What are the c- cities besides Houston that would surprise people? None of those surprise me. I mean, and I know Houston, um, so I'm, I'm familiar with that diversity, and I've heard a lot of people talk about it. But what's been a city that you look at and most people would go, that's a diverse city? <laughs> You know, places like Fremont, California, uh, most people haven't heard of it. I think there was a there was a um, maybe a Saturn uh, automobile plant there some years ago that drew in a lot of workers from various places. It's just in the South Bay area of uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, it's also home to about 60,000 Afghan Muslims. Mm. And it kind of blows you away when you hear that because you say, my goodness, can that be possible? But you go there in downtown, it's called Little Kabul. Mm. Um, and these are these are Afghans who love 
Americans. Most of them fled uh, fled the United fled uh, Afghanistan when the Soviet Union invaded uh, Afghanistan. Wow. And so they're friends of Americans. You know, they've spilled out now. That that was a population that probably today is even maybe even greater than that, but it's spread out to other cities. Sacramento has a big Afghan population, and they're moving out into other places in uh, in California. You know, in Nashville, Tennessee, again, when you hear that there's some 30,000 or so uh, Iraqi Kurds, mm. uh, Kurdish Muslims in Nashville, you go, my goodness, how is that possible? Well, this is the way it happens. You know, someone comes in and a few refugees come in, they have a good experience. Maybe they develop a like for country Western music. I don't know what it is. <laughs> They're just treated nicely by the people and they write to their friends. They spread the word through, this is a good place. These are good people. And it becomes like a sticky little ball and it grows and it then becomes, you know, if you're Kurdish, you're coming to America, Nashville. Uh, you mentioned earlier having this Egyptian pastor friend with some connection from uh, uh, New Jersey. When we lived in Egypt, everyone we knew in Egypt had some relative in New Jersey, Egyptians <laughs> in New Jersey. You know, it's just a big concentration. We have Global Gates teams working there in New Jersey. When I was interviewing Iranians, uh, Iranian uh, Muslim background Christians, followers of Jesus, uh, they would refer to Los Angeles, which had a few hundred thousand Iranians living in the greater Los Angeles area. And they would call Los Angeles Tehranjelis because it <laughs> reminded them of home in Tehran. So wow. it's happening around us, but if your eyes are close to it, you won't see it. And if you simply live your life within the confines of your own ethno-linguistic uh, community, then you're gonna miss something marvelous that God is doing in our day. What, what do you say to those folks who, who feel that, who feel that it is a threat, it's a threat to their way of life, even though people have come here legally, and our, our country is a country of immigrants. It's always been that way. What do you do to help them see what God is doing, see through the lens of God, not through the lens of, of, of loss or nationalism? You know, it, it's... Um... It's incumbent on all of us as Christians to try to see our world, the world, uh, every situation through through God's eyes. And so it helps to be able to point them back to Scripture. And that passage that I referenced earlier, it's just it, it frankly, it jolted me because I've read the Bible so many times and it's just a part of my daily life. But I got to be honest, I did not notice this verse until my Global Gates colleagues pointed it out to me. The first hundred times through, you missed it the exactly. first hundred times you know, And then that's the way scripture is. God's word is just that way. As our yeah. life encounters different situations, scripture speaks to us in different ways. And so I love to share this verse, and I want to read it again yeah. for Do your it. listeners. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. It's God speaking to us here. He says, from one man, God made all the nations. What that says is we're all family. We're all related. We're all from that one origin. He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would perhaps, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. 
though he is not far from any one of us. Mm. This means the the boundaries that we all inhabit today. And, you know, our people, uh, I look at you and I say, yeah, we've probably got the same sort of Northern European, Northwest Mm. European background. Um, So does that mean we should have stayed there? Well, praise God, he brought us here and he's allowed us to be here in a new land. And all the peoples that have come here are also brought here because God, it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, God has appointed the boundaries of these people. And he did it for a purpose. God's purpose was so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. I I think one reason Christians have a a xenophobia, to use a big word, a fear of the stranger or an opposition to outsiders is because they don't see them as potential brothers and sisters in Christ. But when they meet these people as born-again believers and see what God can do in transforming a Muslim fundamentalist into a a born-again, spirit-filled lover of Jesus Christ, they see the future these Christians begin to see what's possible, and it begins to melt their heart. And they say, this is what we want to see happen. We're not anti-foreigner. Uh, the Bible is just filled with passages which, yes. which speak about you know, loving the stranger because you were once a stranger in a strange land. We know it's right, but the thought that our land could be uh, overwhelmed by other religions, that's mm-hmm. kind of what strikes fear. And as a result of fear, hostility in the hearts of Christians. And they just need to see through the eyes of faith and then engage. It's mm-hmm. not enough just to passively watch it happen. We're calling, Global Gates is calling on churches to be missional churches again. Mm. And not just be attractional lighthouses. Right. You know, that's uh, that's not the model that the Great Commission compels us to. It, it sends us out into the, the world, crossing mm-hmm. barriers. Uh, going the extra mile to bring someone to faith in Jesus. And now God has done the heavy lifting. You know, he he died for them. He saved them. Now he's brought them to our front porch. And we're still going to sit back and just watch. We need to be reaching out and bringing them into the kingdom. That's I, I couldn't agree more uh, about that because I, I do think that the attractional model which to me is uh, I like to call a high Christendom characteristic where you're just differentiating between the other, you know, uh, Christians that are there. And the culture though is shifting across around the world to a low Christendom model, which I think is much more of closer to the world of the new Testament, quite honestly, where Mm -hmm. Jesus is encountering the, the pantheon of gods and goddesses in Rome and Greece and, and I mean, even with the, the the Philistines and other different people groups, and and kind of the you know the the compromise that gone on within the Samaritans, and it's another opportunity for us to engage. But I think many of us uh, that have grown up in the church that are of a certain vintage, we're not of that younger generation. It's a little bit of a, a, a I don't want to say a, a shock, but because it's been happening, we've seen this occur. But I think now that it's here. A lot of people are trying to figure out, what do I do? What do I do? And it's causing them to rethink uh, what they do. And I've heard a lot of churches, they don't know what to do. They're relying on the models that were developed in the 70s, which was much more of that attractional nature. And I don't think that's the future. I, I, I think that that's going on its way out. And we do have to become these missional training centers. 
which is what Mike Goheen does in Phoenix. And, and I know uh, with what Global Gates is doing, you, you, you were training a lot of people to do that. And I was looking through your website. You have short-term and long-term mission opportunities. What, describe that for us a little bit. Well, long-term are career missionaries, and we're always calling out, uh, calling out the call t- to come and join us. We, because we can see uh, every people group now in North America having their own uh, language, mm-hmm. their own ethnic identity, which includes their religion, their cultural sensibilities, and their worldview, we're calling out missionaries to adopt a particular people group. So, mm-hmm. for example, a missionary to Somalis, uh, a missionary to Kurds, a missionary to um, Saudis. Uh, And the list goes on and on, Fulani and so forth, Uh, because we believe every people group deserves to have the gospel presented to them in their own language, their own culture, their own worldview. So when we uh, have a missionary come and join us with Global Gates, uh, one of the things that we try to block out time for them to do is learn language and learn culture to immerse themselves in the community. Sometimes it means even going overseas to spend some time in Bangladesh or spend some time in uh, Senegal. Uh, drinking in the culture and learning the language well. So when they come back, they can speak into that culture. Mm. Uh, those are long-term assignments. We have a vast need for those. We could add uh, a thousand of those uh, tomorrow. Wow. Um, the other shorter-term assignments, we do have opportunities for internships down in Houston, for example, we've got a nine-month internship where we've had uh, Christian laypersons and pastors even leave their church and come and spend nine months with us. We uh, plug them into a, 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 an unreached people group community, living in a neighborhood that maybe has uh, Indonesians uh, in it or has uh, uh, Punjabi uh, Muslims in that neighborhood. And it's, it's kind of their concentration. And we teach them how to learn a language, how to uh, uh, exegete that culture and understand. And then their goal is always to get a Bible study started in that community with that people group. We train them. They meet together uh, usually in the evenings because many of these people who moved to Houston are taking up secular jobs to support what they're doing. And the evenings will have evening classes. We're bringing some of the best uh, training that we have in North America. And then during the, um, the springtime, we always take them overseas. Uh, mm. We take them to places like Indonesia and uh, Bangladesh and India and Nepal and Pakistan and the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, every time when they go in the spring, by then they've had several months of training and they're, as we say in the South, they're loaded for bear. They're just ready to go and pour out what they've learned. And they invariably see dozens of Muslims come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this last year, we even saw a young woman, one of our global gators led a young woman in Saudi Arabia to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, because they were prepared now, they were well-equipped. And then when they finish this nine-month internship, some will stay with Global Gates, some will go and join other organizations. We've been happy to train people who go and join Pioneers or or Beyond Ministries or Crew or some other group and go and serve the Lord in other places around the world. Finally, we have some really short-term opportunities. In the summer, we often have uh, what we call sifting weeks, And sifting weeks are sometimes a week, sometimes 10 days, sometimes even a few days less than a week in which uh, volunteers will come and and, uh, they'll plant themselves with us in New York City, somewhere in Queens, for example. A place like Jackson Heights is a a town in Queens with over 200 different language communities in that Mm. one uh, neighborhood. It's the most linguistically complex place 
in North America. We'll train the folks in the morning. We'll get together, have some worship, maybe at a local church sanctuary, have some worship, a little bit of training, what to expect, how to go out into the neighborhood. And then we just send them out into those neighborhoods to sit in the coffee shops, to go into the parks, strike up conversations, to find where God is at work, mm-hmm. where people are having dreams and visions about uh, someone in love reaching out to them or someone handing them a book and they don't know what it means where we can scatter two or 300 people into those neighborhoods, we'll find those places where God is at work. Out of the hundreds of thousands of people in those neighborhoods, we'll find those little persons of peace. And we call them sifting weeks because as they find those, they'll develop a little relationship, get their name and address, and pass those back on to our missionaries who can then do long-term follow-up with them throughout the year. And that's uh, one of the things that's going on now in New York City. It's going on in Washington, D.C., in Detroit, in Houston, and other places around the country. You mentioned finding those people with visions and dreams and and these other people that have led many Muslims to the Lord. Uh, That leads me to uh, your book. Now, your book's nine years old now, um, but it's a book that I really thoroughly thoroughly appreciated. Uh, A Wind in the House of Islam, How God is Drawing Muslims Around the World to Faith in Jesus Christ. And I I wanted to talk a bit about this, if that's okay. First of all, what is the House of Islam and why is that important? Well, the House of Islam is a term that was coined by uh, Muslim historians and jurists, as they call them, uh, all the way back in the early days of Islam. And uh, it referred to dividing the world into two houses. Uh, One was called uh, Dar al-Islam, the House of Islam, which is the house of peace where Islam is dominant. The other was called, where Islam was not yet dominant, was called the Dar al-Harb, which in Arabic means the house of war. Mm. And this was the place that Islam was going into and advancing into. Um, It's interesting as we looked at where God is bringing Uh, hundreds of thousands of Muslims to faith in Jesus Christ, the vast majority, well over 90% of these are taking place inside the house of Islam, Mm -hmm. inside the Muslim-dominated world. And yet, even within that uh, house of Islam, it's not a monolith. You know, if you go from West African Muslim countries like uh, Senegal and Mali, sweep across North Africa, Algeria, Libya, so forth, into the Middle East, Egypt, across Saudi Arabia, And then into Central Asia, where you've got the Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkey, down into uh, Southwest Asia with Iran and across into Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and then finally uh, the far eastern nations of Malaysia and uh, Indonesia. Uh, Indonesian Muslims are quite different than West African Muslims from one end of the Muslim world to the other. That's the house of Islam. So within that house, we identified nine geocultural rooms. These are geographical areas that have sort of evolved and developed together over the last thousand years. West Africa, for example, is rather distinct from North Africa. So those are two different rooms in the House of Islam. Likewise, the Arab room is very much a different room from the Persian room or the Iranian room, which is also different from the Turkestani room, which extends from Turkey in the West to the Uyghur people of Western China in the East. So each of these nine rooms uh, has its own sort of cultural flavor, its own foods, its own history, its own language families. 
what we wanted to see was where are these Muslim movements to Christ, these hundreds of thousands of Muslims that we're hearing about, where is it happening? Is it in one or two rooms? Or could it possibly be in all nine rooms in the House of Islam? And my book uh, gathered over a thousand interviews, traveled over a quarter of a million miles throughout the House of Islam into all nine rooms and found that there are Muslim movements to Christ, in some case, cases a few thousand, in some cases tens and even hundreds of thousands of Muslims who are coming to faith in Christ in these movements that are spreading, that have been spreading really just in the last 25 to 30 years. God is doing something in our day we've never seen before. We are in fact witnessing the greatest turning of Muslims to Christ mm. in history. I, I want to stop there for a moment with that, because that I think is phenomenal. You actually talk about this in the book, and it's it's been a while since I've read the book, but this is how much it made an impression on me. Mm. You talk about the movements of Muslims to Christ, and you have some dates in mind. Now, pre-9-11, how mm. many, first of all, what quantifies as a movement? Secondly, how many movements had we seen? Because I thought I found that absolutely fascinating when you said yeah. that. And that's really important because it does set the stage. Most people don't yeah. realize this, but uh, you know, I'm a church historian that by training. And so uh, I wanted to see if what we're seeing today was unique or if, in fact, it's something that is just, you know, there's been swings back and forth of Muslims coming to Christ through the years. So I went back to identify every time in church history or in the history of Islam that there is a record of at least a thousand Muslims from a particular community being baptized, coming to faith in Jesus. And, you know, what you find is that it, and people will say, well, David, that's 1,400 years of history. How could you possibly know? It's that big a deal. <laughs> when it happened, it was so unusual that it made church history. It was recorded. So the first time we see a movement of at least 1,000 uh, Muslims in a community say, we want to follow Jesus and be baptized, it takes place at the end of the 10th century near the town of Nisibis, which was an old Nestorian stronghold that had been overwhelmed by Islam. Yeah. But there's a report of some uh, uh, 10 to 20,000 Muslim men who asked for baptism. And um, that was unusual. That hadn't happened before. And undoubtedly, it wasn't just the men. It was their wives and children as well. This was into Orthodox Byzantine uh, Christianity. Uh, so that's the first time. Notice that that takes place 350 years after the death of the prophet Muhammad. Mm. So in the first 350 years, you've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians in Christianized lands being assimilated or at least conquered by the Muslim world and then gradually assimilated into the Muslim world. It's not until 350 years later you get the first turning the other way. And that's mm. one movement. You don't get the next uh, three movements until the 13th century. Mm. So you get uh, three movements that take place right at the end of the 12th and 13th centuries. They take place, uh, one is in what today is Libya. Uh, one, Conrad of Ascoli, uh, saw 6,400 uh, Libyans come to faith. Another one takes place in the Levant area, what today would be Lebanon, Palestine area, where uh, you have... Uh, uh, William um, of Tripoli reports a little over a thousand Muslims come to faith in baptism. And then you have a, a third one takes place. Where was the third one? 
One, two, and I'm trying to recall these from memory. It's been a while since I've read my book as well. Anyway, you get a third one around that time as well. Uh, and then you have 500 years, 500 years without a single reported Muslim movement of at least a thousand Muslims coming to faith in baptism mm. anywhere in the world. Mm. Now, I draw this exception. You can go to Iberia, the Spanish you know, the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, during the Reconquista, you have thousands of uh, Muslims who are pressured into conversion. To be able to stay in Spain, they had to become Catholics. So you do have thousands there, but that's not a movement, that's a coercion. Mm. And later, they're actually denounced as being Moriscos, which is little Moors. They're still Muslims, secretly Muslims. So they are all expelled by 1492. You know, they push the Moors out of the Iberian Peninsula and they land in North Africa. So that's not a movement we're talking about, actual voluntary movements of people coming to faith and baptism. 500 years, nothing. Then in the 19th century, the end of the 19th century, there's two movements. One takes place in Indonesia. The other one takes place way over in what today is Eritrea. Uh, at the time would have been Abyssinia. Those are two movements that break a 500-year drought, mm. and then you come into the 20th century. In the last 35 years of the 20th century, we record 11 movements, 11 well-documented movements that take place in various corners of the House of Islam, the Muslim world. Uh, some of those are in Iran. Some are taking place in uh, Albania. Some are taking place in West Africa, some um, in Bangladesh, and uh some in Central Asia. But when you get into the 20th century, just in my book uh, was published in 2014, just in the first basically 14 years, a little before that, say 12, 13 years or, uh, of, of the 21st century, you have 69 movements that take place. They start popping up all over the Muslim world. So, so let, me get this, let me get this straight there for a second. Let me just stop you there. So we have what, how many movements pre 20th century? 16, is that what you said? Uh, pre, if you go back pre 20th century, you've got two in the 19th century, three in the 13th, 12th, 13th century, one in the 10th century. So that's four, five, six. So six movements, and that's not including the 20th century. Add the 20th century in, and you get how many more? There's 11 more in the 20th century. So, so, so it's roughly 17 movements, and that's a thousand baptized believers, right? Exactly, at least a thousand baptized believers. Then in the 21st century, already 69 movements in just the first 12 years. 69 movements in the first yeah. 12 years. So yeah. that was that's when you wrote the book. And now we're another nine years later. And we do we have the stats on that? <laughs> we don't. Oh. Uh, one of the things I'm going to be doing in the years ahead is more research into this area. I've recently uh, been offered a, uh, some research support to go and investigate what God's doing today. I continue to hear reports, you know, that come in from various places, but I've been consumed with Global Gates work, mm. and that's been my passion for uh, uh, for some time now. So I'm looking forward to kind of looking again at the bigger picture, but um, we're hoping to see these things spread in North America. You know, when I wrote my book, we could not point to a single Muslim movement to Christ in Europe or North America. Mm. Now, today, I can tell you, I'm happy to say there's well over 10,000 uh, Iranian uh, Muslim background believers who live in Europe and North America. Uh, there's probably around a thousand uh, Bangladeshi uh, background, Muslim background believers who live now in the West. So we're starting to see progress, but we've got such a long ways to go. So I'm, 
I'm anxious to see what God's going to do in the years ahead. That's very, very exciting to see all of these different things, to hear about all of these different movements. Uh, and, and I know we're only scratching the surface, really, is hearing so many research, so much research, so many different statistics. Um, one other, another area I wanted to question you about, I've heard you mention T4T, right? It's T4T. Yes. Describe that for a bit, because God's really using that in pretty amazing ways too, isn't he? Yeah, T for T stands for Training for Trainers, and uh, it's just a um, evangelism, discipleship, church planning, leadership development um, initiative that was begun in uh, the Pearl River Delta of uh, China. That's the area around Hong Kong, Macau, up to uh, Canton, China, and Shenzhen. There's about 16 cities. That's the largest urban concentration on Earth, about 64 million people. Uh, crammed into about 14, 15, 16 cities that have all grown together. Hmm. And one of our missionaries there said, how in the world can we reach so many people that are streaming in the tens of millions into this area? And instead of just doing evangelism or just doing discipleship or just doing church planning, uh, God graced uh, Ying Kai is his name, Ying and Grace Kai, his wife's name is Grace. He, he uh, blessed them with some insights that led to um, an evangelism, discipleship, church formation, leadership development um, initiative hmm. that he wove together and called it T4T, Training for Trainers. Hmm. In about 10 years time, we saw over a million, uh, in fact, it was about one and a half million baptisms took place hmm. uh, in that area. We'd never seen anything like this. In fact, you can go on the International Mission Board's website, they've got their history log. They said, you know, of all the missionaries who have served over 175 years of history with the International Mission Board, no one has had as prolific a ministry as this 10-year period when Ying and Grace Kai were working uh, with using T4T. T4T has since uh, been written up uh, first by Steve Smith, the late Steve Smith wrote a book called T for T, a discipleship re-revolution. It's gone into more than 20 languages around the world and is spreading uh, T for T, simple reproducing biblical methodology into all kinds of languages and cultures. More recently, Ying and Grace Kai. Ying is uh, now in his 70s. He's still training and teaching and evangelizing and discipling, and Grace is right there with him. Uh, Ying has uh, written a book, uh, the little book called Ying and Grace Kai's Training for Trainers. Mm. And it not only gives it first person, this is what Ying and Grace Kai teach, but it also has little vignettes and stories from literally all over the world, from Madagascar to Russia to Europe to Latin America to India and China and Southeast Asia, people using Tea for Tea to share the gospel. You know, the, the, the magic's not in T4T. The magic, the power's in the gospel. Mm. But what T4T does is it provides a simple reproducing vehicle for sharing the gospel, for immediately discipling new believers to uh, make a list of five people in their family, their friends network who are lost, and then helps train them in how they can tell their story, what my life was like before Jesus, how I met Jesus, my life since Jesus and then share the gospel with them, the New Testament gospel. And from that form, little house churches that can reproduce. And what we've seen is the reproduction through T4T is truly remarkable because it fits into almost any culture anywhere, because it begins with you telling your story 
of how you met Jesus and how Jesus changed your life, and then bringing them directly into God's word to understand what it is that Jesus did for us and how he wants us to be his ambassadors to a lost world. Mm. I love hearing that. I've read the book. It's, it is quite astounding. There are a lot of principles in there that I think a lot of us could do well to emulate or try to draw from. Um, David, I just have to say how much I enjoy this conversation and what uh, God has used you to do and the, the mission and the heartbeat of, of Global Gates is something that we really truly resonate with. How, how can people get involved with Global Gates and how can we pray for you? Yeah, I would invite people to come visit our website. We've got a pretty robust website, globalgates.info, globalgates.info. And uh, you'll see on there resources, videos, uh, you'll see connections, other links, and um, ways they can get involved, ways they can contribute to the work of Global Gates. Um, also, that, that website, upgnorthamerica.com. If they want to see, you know, where these unreached people groups are here in North America, that's a great uh, website developed by uh, Chris Clayman and and his uh, colleagues across the evangelical world. And it gives you some good resources for engaging uh, the ends of the earth that God has brought through our global gateway cities. In praying for, for me and for my family, you know, just pray that uh, I'm getting old. You can see that. I'm not sure your listeners will know that uh, unless they can detect it in my voice. Pray that I will finish well mm. and finish faithfully. I'm, I'm, uh, this Mother's Day is coming up. I've been in touch with my 90-year-old mother, and she's in her probably her final year of life. Or mm. She's breaking down, but, you know, throughout her life, she has, uh, she's been faithful in loving the lost, loving unreached people groups, rejoicing at seeing them come into Christ's kingdom and new life in Christ. And I would just pray that uh, however many years God has for me, that I will, I will continue to uh, walk humbly with him and uh, see him live out his purposes in my life and in the life of my family. That's good. That's something we can pray for. David, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's really been a delight. Thank you, brothers. Great to get to know you. God bless you and your listeners. I loved that conversation. It gets me fired up. Do you know why? For two reasons, and both of them are awesome. Number one, God has brought the nations here for us to reach them, to show the power of his gospel in transforming lives. That's the first reason. Second is this. God has brought the nations here to reach our culture and revive the church in North America. Those are the two reasons that I get excited either for us to reach them, to see how powerful he is, or to revive the church that's here. I, I told you that I lived in New England during my seminary days, and many of the Caucasian churches there were dying. The churches that were growing were actually made up of immigrants and various ethnic groups, and I want to be a part of that. Henry Blackaby, in his wonderful study, Experiencing God, once said, Find out where God is working and join him there. God is working among the nations all over the world, not just in North America. He's either brought the nations to hear the gospel or strengthen it. Either way, it's a win. God is working among the nations, and I want to join him in that, and I hope you do too. Ask God for the eyes to see who they are and the wisdom and courage to reach them or join them in what he's doing because he is working. And when you do this, I guarantee that your vision of God will grow. 
And if this episode has helped you, and I really hope it has, would you consider partnering with us? We're looking for watering partners to help this ministry grow. We're delighted by all of those who have partnered with us in a, such a short period of time. And if God has used this episode to help grow your faith, then please partner with us. And you can do so in one of two ways. Number one, pray for us, because this is a spiritual work. Without God, we can do nothing. Pray that God would give us wisdom to find the best waterers out there who can help you water your world. And secondly, we need your financial support. Go to apolloswater.org. There's a support us button in the upper right-hand corner. Click that and you'll find many suggested amounts. Pick the one that is right for you or simply write in the amount and surprise us. And remember, you're not just giving to a ministry, you're investing in eternity. And we would love to have more people grow from connecting with Apollos Watered. If you've been impacted while listening to a podcast, do us a favor, screenshot it, text it to a friend, share it on your stories, or simply share it directly from your podcast platform. Subscribing and leaving a review also puts it out there to more people. Together, let's leave a trickle of truth and encouragement around the world and watch people grow. I want to thank our Apollos Watered team of Kevin, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, Rebecca, and Audrey. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.